Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Podcast on Hot Topics in NASH. I'm your host, Zachary Schwartz. This series features experts in endocrinology and in hepatology, covering the latest in screening, diagnostic tests, evidence for diets, and treatment, and each one is followed by an in-depth question and answer session. Today's episode is entitled Non-Invasive Tests for NASH, Now and in the Future. During this episode, Dr. Stephen Harrison from San Antonio, Texas, will weigh the latest perspectives on wet biomarkers, on imaging, and on combination tests. For more information on Dr. Harrison, and for a link to additional online education on NASH from Clinical Care Options, please visit the show notes for this episode. You can also go to the show notes to see the slides that accompany this podcast. Now let's get started and hear the latest in non-invasive tests for NASH with Dr. Harrison. So I'm going to touch base on where we stand with biomarkers as we close out 2019 and move into 2020 with a blend of some data out of AASLD with some other data that has been generated in the past several months. So we're going to go through this overview of biomarkers, and then we're going to apply three different contexts of use. And those are the diagnosis of NASH patients with what we would say is the approvable endpoint for a drug to reach the clinic, in other words, to become FDA approved, right now is a NASH patient with a NAFLD activity score of four more and at least F2 or greater fibrosis. So it'd be great if we had a non-invasive test to diagnose that particular type of patient. That is also the patient at greatest risk for disease progression. And then another context of use would be, let's say you put them on a drug and you wanna know if it's working. So we need to be able to assess therapeutic response. And then finally, the ideal biomarker would be able to say, look, I've got 100 people I'm seeing with fatty liver, which ones are going to develop a long-term negative outcome as a result of that fatty liver? So if we were able to have a drug or a therapy, a non-invasive test that could predict long-term patient outcome, that would be great. So that's kind of the skeleton of what we're going to talk about today. So let's jump right into that and see what we can learn. So I think it's probably worthwhile to just touch on the histologic features of fatty liver disease. And so what I highlight on this, the trichrome on the left and the H&E on the right, is steatosis first. And that's highlighted by these clear vacuoles, if you will. This is triglyceride. It's inert. It doesn't hurt the patient. It's the liver's way of storing toxic fatty acids. It does that by esterifying them to triglyceride. And you can see here that this patient has a significant amount of fatty infiltrate. Next is ballooning. Now, this is an interesting histologic finding. It is a hallmark feature of NASH. If you do not have this, you do not have NASH. So unfortunately, today, we don't have the ideal non-invasive test to find this guy. For a while, we looked at marker like CK18, but unfortunately, it's not specific enough to necessarily identify patients on the individual patient level. It's really good at population level, but not at the individual level. And ballooning is hard to find. I made it easy on this slide. Anybody could identify this balloon cell, but there are what we call classical and non-classical balloon cells. And the struggle that histopathologists have is identifying the non-classical balloon cell. And this is where we get the problem with some slides you know, you review it and it's NASH. Another pathologist might review it and say it's not NASH. And it's centered around this idea of finding the balloon hepatocyte. So that's what one looks like. And then if we move forward, inflammation you see here, this is lymphocytes and neutrophils that tend to accumulate 
in the lobular area. If it's in the portal area, mainly or solely, we don't think of NASH. We think of viral hepatitis or drug-induced liver injury or even early primary biliary cholangitis. But as you advance in liver disease in NASH and get into F3 disease, for instance, or stage 3 fibrosis, we can begin to see portal inflammation as well as lobular inflammation. But I'm not highlighting that here on the slide, just lobular inflammation. And then finally, fibrosis on the trichrome stain is highlighted in this blue color. And here you see it kind of permeating out from the portal tract and extending into the lobular area. And we call that perivenular or perisinusoidal fibrosis. So how do NAFLD patients typically present? Well, usually they're asymptomatic. The majority of these are discovered by chance. I saw a large number of patients yesterday in clinic, and most of them did not have any symptoms. When they did, it was fatigue, very nonspecific. They just felt tired, didn't really have any other explanation for it. And when you begin to look at other what we call incidental findings, you can have abnormal LFTs, but you don't have to have abnormal LFTs. Often I get an ultrasound or I get sent patients that have had an ultrasound that show a bright liver or evidence of increased echogenicity consistent with fat. And very, very rarely we'll see incidental hepatomegaly. This is more often seen, in my opinion, and in my practice, in alcoholic liver disease. Doesn't mean that you can't see it in NASH. I just don't see it very often. A common scenario where we see these people present is primary care docs are checking liver enzymes as part of statin monitoring or annual reviews for a diabetic, lipid, or hypertension clinic, or they're here for their health insurance physical or some type of occupational health check. So what are some very simple first steps to do when you suspect NAFLD? Well, I think what we know and what we've learned and kind of added to the literature, even in the past year, is the notion that diabetes and obesity really drive this disease. In fact, if you look at a diabetic population, between 60 and 75% of diabetics will have fatty liver, and about a third of them will actually have NASH if you do a liver biopsy on them. It's pretty amazing the high prevalence of NASH in that population. In obesity, we see a similar amount of fat maybe not quite as much NASH outside of a diabetic population, but it's still quite high. So I would say if you have a patient with metabolic syndrome or more specifically diabetes and or obesity, that puts them in a risk category. And then you want to ask them about their alcohol. And here's a term you'll, you're going to laugh at, but it's called BASH, both ASH and NASH. You can have a drunk who also has diabetes and obesity, and so they have both alcoholic liver disease and non-alcoholic liver disease. So if you want to focus just on the NAFLD part, you've got to ask them about alcohol and you have to kind of meet the standard that's here. And that is two drinks a day for a woman or three drinks a day for a man. And I always say, be a little bit more specific than that, because in Texas, drinks can be very big, right? How many of those beers do you have a day? Well, doc, I just have one but it's the 24-ouncer, right? So you have to kind of get at that a little bit. And then you want to exclude other known pre-existing liver disease. We usually do that through some simple blood tests. And those are listed in point three here under investigations, where we're trying to exclude 
other liver diseases like viral hepatitis, autoimmune liver disease. And if they're young, potentially celiac sprue. And we also look for iron overload. And in the rare setting, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. You also, very simply, I would get a, either a fiber scan or a liver ultrasound looking for increased echogenicity and a good set of liver biochemistries. So let's talk about those liver biochemistries. Ultimately, they're inadequate to assess NAFLD and NASH alone. ALT can be normal in up to 50% of individuals with NASH and 80% of individuals with fatty liver. And here's an interesting thing. It can be elevated in isolated fatty liver in patients that don't have NASH. So ultimately, ALT and AST are not sensitive for NAFLD and NASH. Do I obtain them? Absolutely. Where are they helpful? They're helpful in the ratio of ALT to AST. In other words, if the ALT, and this is an ALT predominant disease, when they are abnormal, the ALT will tend to be higher than the AST. But as the AST climbs to the level of ALT, thus the AST to ALT ratio is one, that confers increased risk for fibrosis. So that's where I use it. And I would advise you to do the same. Now, here's a little bit more data that underlines and accentuates what I just said. So I'm going to use, you know, some nice illustrations. So here you have on the left a table and you have 51 patients with normal ALT and 50 patients with an abnormal ALT. And if you look at fat alone, fat plus inflammation, fat plus ballooning, fat plus ballooning in Mallory's Highland with fibrosis, you really see no difference between normal ALT group and abnormal ALT group, highlighting my point that ALT is not a good predictor of NASH. Now, I think just as equally on the right-hand graph, you can see on the horizontal axis, stage of fibrosis, none, portal inflammation, bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis. And what you see is ALT on the vertical axis. And ultimately, you see a slight downtrend in ALT as you progress from mild disease to advanced disease. If I showed you a graph of AST, it would look exactly the opposite. You would see increasing levels of AST as you go from none to cirrhosis, such that by the time you're at cirrhosis, AST is actually higher than ALT. I hope that makes sense to you. So we get to vote again. So here we go. Which of the following best describes the role of liver enzymes in evaluating patients at risk for NAFLD? A, normal ALT rules out NAFLD. B, elevated ALT predicts fibrosis. C, elevated AST to ALT ratio predicts inflammation. D, ALT or AST are not sensitive for NAFLD. Or E, you're unsure. So let's open those polls and vote. We'll give it a few seconds. Okay, let's uh, close the polls and see our answers. So ultimately, when we, we ask the question here, ALT or AST are not sensitive for NAFLD. That is absolutely correct. So you guys are clearly listening. The second most common answer was elevated AST and ALT ratio predicts inflammation. 27% said that. There was a little trick there. It actually predicts fibrosis, right? So the, the higher the AST 
is relative to ALT such that the ratio becomes one, that predicts more advanced fibrosis. So close there, but if I took out inflammation and put fibrosis, that would be the right answer. Okay, let's keep trucking. So, and this just basically highlights what I went over verbally, that ALT can be normal in up to 80% of individuals with NAFLD and that ALT can't predict NASH or fibrosis and that ultimately both of these liver enzymes are not sensitive for fatty liver and NASH. So is liver biopsy always necessary in fatty liver? So I'm a liver doc. I would love to say yes, because I love doing liver biopsies, but the answer is no, not always. And so that's good news for you guys. How can we select patients for liver biopsy? Well, let's talk about when to do a liver biopsy. It is necessary in many cases, and this is to confirm the diagnosis and exclude alternative or secondary pathology to ultimately stratify progression risk. And what do I mean by that? Well, I already mentioned that as you progress from stage one to two to three to four, that patients are at increased risk of developing a negative outcome. In fact, the data would suggest that once you get to F2, you're at increased all-cause mortality, and that even you're at increased risk of disease progression from a liver disease uh, decompensation perspective. So ultimately, you want to tailor liver biopsies to individual patients. If you've got marked abnormalities in serum liver enzymes, you're unable to detect what's going on non-invasively, then you have diagnostic doubt, do the liver biopsy. If you have non-invasive tests that are high or indeterminate, yeah, maybe that's the group you want to biopsy or the patient choice. Now, more often than not, patients will choose to not do a liver biopsy, but ultimately there will be some that really want to know and they'll, they'll actually ask for the biopsy. So is it really necessary in NAFLD? Not always, but still it's important if you want to nail the prognosis. Okay, and we'll talk more about how we're working on that non-invasively in just a moment. Okay, now I love this slide. It's a pyramid I made a couple years back and it highlights the high risk features in NAFLD. If you wanted to say, doc, I don't have time to evaluate every one of my fatty liver patients for this disease and to stratify them, I need the low hanging fruit. Tell me who I need to look out for. Here it is. The high likelihood of NASH patients would be those over 50 with metabolic syndrome. If you can get a fibra scan, the KPA is over eight and a half or the AST is above 40, or they have the NAFLD fibrosis score that's in the abnormal range or the FIB4. Both the NFS and the FIB4 are online calculators. You just got to go type them into Google. They'll pop up. You type in the clinical information. It spits out a number. If it's greater than what I have listed here, they're in the high-risk category. You see the AST-ALT ratio greater than or equal to one. If you don't remember anything else from this lecture, remember that. When the AST and ALT are the same number, bad things happen. The one caveat to that is if they're both normal, the ratio doesn't count. So I'm talking about AST, ALTs in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, something like that. That's when they're the same number that we tend to see increased rates of NASH with fibrosis. Okay, let's keep going. So non-invasive tests, proper use of non-invasive tests can aid in risk stratification. We do that by combining demographic information with laboratory data and BCTE, which is what I use in my clinic, which is vibration controlled transient elastography 
or NASH. And when you combine these three, you can enrich for NASH and F2-3 fibrosis. Now, I mentioned already the NAFLD fibrosis score and FIB4. And you see here two different cutoffs for both scoring systems. One is really sensitive. And so it helps to exclude advanced fibrosis. That's the left hand in the blue area. That's the lower limit on the FIB4 and the NAFLD fibrosis score. Moving to the right, highly specific cutoff, it identifies those with advanced fibrosis, and you see the same two cutoff scores I have on the pyramid I showed you two slides ago. However, there's a big piece of the pie in the middle that's indeterminate. And ultimately, when you apply these two tests in your clinical practice, where there's likely a low prevalence of advanced liver disease, there's a lack of sufficient positive predictive value to use this test alone to help stratify your patients. So what about AST? Dr. Harrison, you've talked about AST. I'm tired of you talking about it. Show me some real data. Well, here it is. Here's a study I published in 08 in gut. I looked at about 800 patients with various stages of fatty liver, and I just highlight the AST and the AST-ALT ratio as you go from fatty liver alone to NASH with F3, F4 fibrosis, you see the AST rise and you see the ratio rise. So here's kind of a way that you can look at this and apply that potentially to your clinical practice. Now, it's important to also know that you don't wanna use AST alone to predict disease because it also has a low positive predictive value. So ultimately, let's look at imaging. Now, if you don't have a fiber scan, you may not understand what I'm talking about. So let me just give you a brief summary. Fiber scan is an ultrasound-based device that's non-invasive that you can carry around and it's the size of a potential, like a briefcase. And you can put it in a clinical room and where there's a bed, you can bring patients in, they lay flat on the bed, and you actually put this probe over the right upper quadrant where you think the liver is, in between the ribs, and you hit a little button, there's a gentle tap against the edge of the skin, and you get two numbers. You get what's called a cap, which is controlled attenuation parameter, and that tells us if there's fat or not fat in the liver. The cutoff you see here is 280. It goes to 400. If it's 280 or higher, we tend to say the patient has fat in the liver. The other number that we get is a fibroscan stiffness score called a KPA. That's kilopascal. And what we know there is less than six is really kind of a normal fibrosis stiffness score. And so if it's less than six, I tell my patients, you know, you may have some fat in your liver, but I'm not sure there's anything we need to do more than just lifestyle modification. However, as you step up from six, there is a link between a rising KPA score and liver stiffness and underlying fibrosis. But I wanna be careful here. There's not a specific number that correlates with a specific stage of fibrosis. Let me say that again. Don't walk away from here thinking you can use VCTE to stage your liver fibrosis. You can't do it. You can just say that there's probably an abnormality in the liver there's probably damage, but I can't fully quantify the amount of it. And that's what I tell my patients. Now, there are exceptions to that rule. 
if you get above 20, the probability that you're dealing with somebody with advanced liver disease rises significantly. Here's another pearl for you. If the KPA is less than 13.1, the negative predictive value for cirrhosis is 99%. So you can tell them very confidently, you may have disease, but you don't have cirrhosis. Now, again, the positive predictive value for CAP and KPA is low. So you can't use that alone to help your patients. So I think you're seeing what I'm driving at. Ultimately, it's going to be combinations of these wet biomarkers with clinical biomarkers and imaging biomarkers that give us our best shot at identifying patients with disease. So let's move to an outcomes case. So here is a patient with obesity, type 2 diabetes, and a family history of NASH. The ultrasound shows a bright liver, increased echogenicity versus the kidney, and vascular blurring. That's a fancy way of saying this patient has fatty liver. You're considering this fiber scan or vibration controlled transient elastography. And you ask me the question, or the patient asks you the question, Doc, what will this fiber scan be able to tell us? And here's your chance to shine. You will tell your patient that, depending on the results of their study, you will be able to reliably confirm fatty liver, confirm advanced fibrosis, rule out fatty liver, or rule out advanced hepatic fibrosis, or unsure. So let's open the polls and give it a vote, and we'll look at our answers in just a minute. Okay, let's close the polls and see what we got. Okay, 70% of you guys got this correct. You said rule out advanced hepatic fibrosis, and that I can't overstate that enough. The best utilization of FibroScan is for its negative predictive value in telling your patients that they don't have any significant liver disease. So I think the vast majority of you guys nailed that on the head. Okay, let's keep rolling. Okay, so first context of use is diagnosis of NASH patients with an NAS of four or greater with F2 or greater fibrosis. And when we look at non-invasive tests that are in development for this particular context of use, you can see that there are four that have kind of risen to the top or that at least have some data to go along with them. This is NIS4. NIS4 is a blood-based biomarker that is being developed by GenFit in combination with LabCorp. It involves four different biomarkers, A2M, hemoglobin A1C, a messenger RNA, and YKL40. And it's currently available for research purposes. So if you're doing a clinical trial, if you have any pharma on the line, this is a test that you could incorporate into your clinical trial research. Fibrospect. So this is also a blood test. It's A2M, so again, similar to NIS4, where it differentiates from NIS4 is that it includes hyaluronic acid and TEMP1. And again, this is a send-out uh, blood test. The third one here is ADAPT slash Pro-C3. And this is also a blood test that looks at age, the presence or absence of diabetes. Pro-C3, which is a marker of fibrogenesis and platelet count. As you guys know, as platelet counts drop, that's a sign of portal hypertension and blood shunting to the spleen. The spleen loves platelets. It eats them up and serum platelet counts drop. So this is still investigational, but it has been published, so I wanted to highlight that. 
And then finally, there's something called FAST, which is FibroScan plus AST. And this combines a blood test and an imaging biomarker. So you have AST, the FibroScan KPA, as well as the control attenuation parameter. And there's now an app that you can get on your phone where you can enter this and it actually gives you a score. So first of all, let me just briefly talk about NIS4. It's designed to detect active NASH with F2 or greater fibrosis. And the data was derived from two databases. One is the Golden 505 trial. The other is the Resolve It trial. In total, 714 patients were used to develop this. A training set was put together in 220 patients from the first study, and then it was validated in a separate set of 467 patients that were included in the phase three Resolve It trial. And so on this slide, I just want to show you kind of high level how it's working. For the overall population, the area under the receiver operator characteristic curve was 0.83, which is actually a good number. It's, it's actually very good at predicting patients with NASH and an NAS of 4 with F2 or greater fibrosis. We think if you're above 0.8, you're probably pretty good, at least compared to the imperfect gold standard of liver biopsy. And you can see below in the table the certain prevalences of disease and their relative AUCs. What about Fibrospect? Again, looking at differentiating mild versus advanced fibrosis, this is a retrospective analysis of this Fibrospect test versus biopsy-based fibrosis score in three different cohorts of patients. Ultimately, there were 640 patients that were evaluated, and you see a rock curve of 0.856, which again is above that 0.8 number that we had talked about. And you see, again, negative predictive values are very high here. Positive predictive values are not so high, at least looking at the current validation cutoffs. When we look at the third one that we had highlighted, which is ADAPT Pro-C3, this is an algorithm, again, based on age, diabetes, Pro-C3, and platelets. The data were derived from independent cohorts of fatty liver patients where a liver biopsy was available. And we see, consistent with newer data coming out this year in 2019 and further supported by data at AASLD, that Pro-C3 is independently associated with advanced fibrosis and you see the odds ratio and p-value, when you look at the algorithm of ADAPT, it accurately identified patients with advanced fibrosis, and you see the ROC curve again greater than 0.8. So what about the FAST score, this FibroScan plus AST? And here I show you a prospective multi-centered study that was presented in abstract form in 335 patients this basically takes into effect the CAP, the KPA, and the AST, and it gives you a value. And you can see this is taken off of the app. You can download this app. You can put those numbers in, and it computes a score, which gives you a probability of having a patient with advanced disease or not. So we applied this FAST score in a screening real-world cohort in San Antonio, where we took 240 paired liver biopsy patients and 270 that did not have liver biopsies, total 510 patients. And you can see that 
On the vertical axis is the FAST score, and on the horizontal axis is NASH with an NAS of four or greater with F2 or greater fibrosis. And you can see that if you look in the green box, that's no liver biopsy, and in the blue is liver biopsy that was not NASH, and the red box is liver biopsy with NASH with NAS of four or greater with F2 or greater fibrosis. You can see these nice separation of box plots between the blue and the red box, showing that this test was very good at predicting those people likely to have advanced disease. So what are these diagnostic thresholds? Well, it really kind of depends on what you're looking at. In this slide, I'll just summarize very quickly. If you look in the upper left hand with patients with a liver biopsy and you want to rule out patients with a high sensitivity, you would use the cutoff of 0.21, and you see the sensitivity and specificity, the sensitivity being 0.93, which is very, very good, and that goes along with a negative predictive value of 0.99. Alternatively, if you want to set your specificity high, you would increase that to 0.43, and you would have ultimately a very high specificity and even an improved negative predictive value. So you can just kind of begin to see that you can use this FAST score and the cutoffs that are provided to rule in or rule out disease depending on what you think is going on in your clinical situation. Ultimately, I think there's this use of sequential non-invasive tests that could reduce the number of patients in the indeterminate zone. As I showed you before with NIS4 and NAFLD fibrosis score, there's a large indeterminate zone in the middle. And I think if you're able to combine one non-invasive test with the other, we minimize the indeterminate zone. So that's kind of where we are currently. Here, sequential algorithms to detect advanced fibrosis due to NASH. And this is a study of baseline data from the stellar trials with over 3,000 patients enrolled. And what you find is single test, either the NAFLD fibrosis score, FIB4, ELF, or FibroScan, led to about 50% of patients falling into that indeterminate zone. However, if you use sequential test, FIB4, then ELF, or VCTE, you're able to cut that indeterminate result in half. So moving on to biomarkers that assess therapeutic response, we have a couple here, ALT, MRI, corrected T1, which is a MRI-based image, ELF test, which is another blood test, and Pro-C3, I've already mentioned. Which ones are commercially available in the U.S.? Well, of course, ALT, MRI, PDFF, and multiparametric MRI are all commercially available. ELF is still under investigation. Siemens has this study, and then Nordic Biosciences has Pro-C3, and both are still being evaluated uh, and are not ready for prime time in the clinic yet. So what about developing drugs for NASH? Well, we use ALT and we use MRI-PDFF in early phase development to help predict the probability that these drugs are going to work when you go into paired liver biopsy studies. What's the cutoffs? Well, more and more data is coming out that if you reduce ALT by 17 units per liter or more, that that actually correlates with improvement in underlying histology. Alternatively, improvement in liver fat as measured by MRI-PDFF of greater than or equal to 30% relative reduction is predictive also of improvement in underlying histology. 
So moving forward, what about liver multi-scan? This is that corrected T1 value that I was telling you about. And it turns out that values of greater than 825 milliseconds have been associated with a lower long-term survival. And this is a simple test that's non-invasive. They go into the MR scanner. There's no IV, no contrast. It takes about 12 minutes. And you're able to generate this image that you see here. And so looking at this a little bit closer, if we look at a healthy patient on the left, it's set up a little bit like a stoplight. Green is good, yellow is kind of pump the brakes, and red is bad. Here, you see liver fat content. It's giving you, on liver multi-scan, the PDFF. Here, it's 1%, so no fatty liver. And you see the CT1, it's less than 825. It gets a green signal. Alternatively, on the right, this is a NASH patient, 12% liver fat, and the CT1 is over 825. And so this patient is, when we did liver biopsy, correlated to a NASH patient. We can also use it to track lifestyle intervention. So here on the left is a patient when they enrolled, they had a lot of fat in the liver. The CT1 was above 825. They ended up losing a large amount of body weight. Repeat scanning in March of 2017 now shows no fatty liver and the CT1 is dropped below 800 milliseconds. So here's an example where you can use this tool that's available in your clinical practice potentially uh, to assess therapeutic efficacy to weight loss. Now, here's a patient who underwent bariatric surgery, and on the left you see a red liver, lots of fat, lots of inflammation, and after weight loss through bariatric surgery, you see drop in that CT1 to less than 800 and liver fat normalization. So what about going back to some of these non-invasive tests? Pro-C3, ELF, and multi-parametric MRI and corrected T1. And what have we learned from the clinical data in some of these studies? Well, here's a study, an open-label, uncontrolled study of NGM-282, which is an FGF-19 analog. We treated patients for 12 weeks and repeated the liver biopsy. The numbers are small, 43 patients. But you can see here the responders in blue and the non-responders in red to histology. In other words, patients that got better on liver biopsy also tended to have much lower pro-C3 levels at week 12 than non-responders, those that responded. Their ELF scores tended to be much lower, and their CT1 scores also were much lower as well. This same data with pro-C3 and ELF correlated with liver fibrosis stage in another study, this was a recently published study with resmeterone. It's now published in Lancet. And you see also that similar improvements were seen in Pro-C3 and ELF. And there was also improvement in CK18. So finally, moving on to long-term patient outcomes. We don't have as much data yet here, but I wanted to circle back to that multi-parametric MRI because while this data hasn't been published in full manuscript form, it has been presented in abstract form, and so I think it is worth highlighting. In this trial, patients with chronic liver disease were imaged with MRI and CT1 corrected for iron content, and this was compared to liver biopsy and histologic fibrosis assessment according to the ISHAC scale. And if you look at essentially these graphs, first stratified by ISHAC fibrosis score and months of follow-up on the horizontal axis, patients remaining liver event-free on this Kaplan-Meier curve, you can see that those with milder forms of fibrosis tended to 
remain liver event free over approximately 80 months of follow-up. The hazard ratio for having patients with F5 or 6 disease, in other words, those with advanced fibrosis, was 9.9. Now, when you look at this multi-parametric MRI and the CT1 data, you can see that if you use a cutoff of 825 milliseconds, those that were higher than that had a much higher rate of not doing well over time. So over approximately 80 months, those patients remaining liver event-free were much lower if you had a higher CT1 score. So it may be, the data is early here, but I'm encouraged by the fact that we may be able to have a test that's non-invasive that could predict the probability of remaining event-free over time. Now, what about ELF test? This is another non-invasive test. It's a blood-based test. There are data generated now showing that this may also correlate as well. Here is a prospective study of adults with NASH and bridging fibrosis or compensated cirrhosis enrolled in a phase 2B semtuzumab clinical trial. Liver biopsies were staged according to the ISHAC scale again, and ELF was calculated at baseline in every 12 weeks. And so here you see if you use a cutoff of 9.76, very similar Kaplan-Meier curve, that that was able to predict patients that went on to progress to cirrhosis or those that remained event-free. So that's probably all I'm going to touch on in that regard. Here I just want to show, again, ELF as it relates to patients survival-free from liver-related events. So the first graph the one I showed you before was 9.76, looking at progression to cirrhosis. This one is predicting long-term outcome events. So it's a higher number, 11.27, as opposed to 9.76. So you can use ELF, depending on what your cutoff is, to predict either progression to cirrhosis or uh, having a clinical event. In summary, Key points, non-invasive tests needed to identify which patients with NAF would require follow-up. ALT or AST are not sensitive for fatty liver. Alone, AST, FIB4, NFS, Fibroscan lacks sufficient positive predictive value to predict NASH and fibrosis. Many non-invasive tests alone or in combination are being studied for those three contexts of use that I've already mentioned, and there's more data to come. So I'll open it up now. We'll have a few minutes for Q&A. Okay, so a couple different questions. How do you ensure the consistency of operation in different research centers of MRI PDFF for assessing liver fat? So this is a great question. There are really three main companies doing MRI PDFF, Siemens, GE, and Philips. And each of them have very specific imaging protocols on how they derive the sequencing to get to MRI PDFF. And these are all very well validated now. And so each center needs to work with their particular vendor. So if it's a Siemens-based platform, they just need to work with the Siemens vendor to validate that their PDFF sequencing is being done correctly. Same thing for Philips and for GE. If it's Perspectum, if it's you have multi-parametric MRI and you're using a CT1 platform, that's also validated through Perspectum and they do something called ideal fat quantification, which is a variance off of PDFF and it's also been well validated. 
how do we interpret fiber scan results? Again, I'll just briefly highlight that. If its CAF score is less than 280, there is no fat. If it's greater than 280, I say there is fat. And when we look at KPA, if it's less than six, I tell patients really nothing to worry about, lose weight exercise. If it's between six and eight and a half, that's kind of no man's land where I still try to mainly focus on lifestyle modification. If it's greater than eight and a half, I then look at the liver enzymes. If the AST is above 30 or 40 and the KPA is above eight and a half, that patient needs further workup. And usually I, I either do a liver biopsy or if I can get an MRI, I try to get a multi-parametric MRI or MRI elastography. And if that's abnormal, uh, I either put them in a study or I do a liver biopsy. We will have an interesting take point on that. A lot of my partners will say, well, why would I biopsy if I don't have a drug? Good news story there is we'll probably have our first FDA-approved treatment for NASH sometime in the first half of 2020. So uh, that would hopefully mitigate that concern. Can we diagnose and treat NASH without liver biopsy? Well, you can't diagnose NASH without a liver biopsy yet. At least it's not validated fully. Where we're gaining knowledge in this arena is when you combine AST with a fiber scan. Again, if the KPA is greater than eight and a half and that AST is above 20, the majority of those people wind up do having NASH. If you use multi-parametric MRI, if your scan is above 825 milliseconds, most of those people have NASH, although not all do. So ultimately, we're not to the point where we have the 100% answer here. How do we create awareness of NASH in the community? Outstanding question. So what I do is I have a fiber scan. I take it around to primary care and I take it to endocrine clinics and I say, can I scan your patients? And we begin the education process that way. And I start with the low hanging fruit. I go after the diabetics that are overweight and I look at those patients and I show them how the liver enzymes aren't really correlating with what we're finding on fiber scan. And it is really an eye-opening experience. I think this disease awareness will ramp up significantly with the first FDA approval of drug because then the companies get behind it and begin a big marketing campaign. Let's see, I have time for one more here. Are there any promising non-invasive diagnostics of NASH and NAFL on the horizon? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the ones that we, we've highlighted today. It depends on the context of use that is out there. If you're looking for a diagnostic, if you're looking for something to measure efficacy or something with to measure long-term prognosis. And I think that's all I've got time for. So thank you for your time today. Sorry, I went a few minutes over, but I think it was helpful to get through this data and I look forward to running into you at another conference soon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Harrison, and thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to hear more about NASH from Clinical Care Options, click on the link in the show notes.